0: Well, Hey, welcome to Sojourn Church. We're so glad that you're here today. If this is your first time, like Alan said, we're grateful that God has brought you together with us. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here and just excited to get into God's word with you this morning. We will be back in the book of Exodus as we continue our series in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So if you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand and somebody will bring a Bible around to you. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us. And if you don't actually own a Bible, for you to be able to take that home with you so that you can read god's word throughout the week my son owen he's four uh we've, i've got two sons isaac and owen Owen's four and he has a book uh that's a story that you, that you may be familiar with i remember singing reading this story when i was a kid in elementary school it goes something like this we're going on a bear hunt we're going to catch a big one what a beautiful day we're not scared But if you are familiar with the story, if you know this story, you know that over and over again, this little family comes up against obstacles to get to the bear. Oh no, a river, a deep, cold river. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh no, we've got to go through it. I imagine that the people of Israel, as they are leaving Egypt after God has freed them to go to this new land that God is going to show them, that they are thinking, we're going to our own land. We're finally free from slavery. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. But just as they're starting on this journey, they encounter an obstacle, not a river, but a sea. And it isn't a place they stumble on by poor navigation. God has led them there. But things get really crazy really quick because with the sea in front of them, they soon realize that right behind them is Pharaoh's army coming after them. They weren't scared, but now they're terrified. But like we've been saying throughout this whole series, this book of the Bible, like Genesis, Exodus also is not a story primarily about Israel, but about God, about how he interacts with and cares for his people. And here, once again, God is going to make himself great and make much of himself i'm looking forward to walking through this with you today this story of deliverance because this story of deliverance isn't just a nice neat story for us to learn about but it's intimately connected with our own and how god's people respond here is the same way god's people should be responding now I'm looking forward to jumping this in, into this with you, and whether you know Christ or you don't know Christ, I hope that God will use our time in his word this morning to draw you to himself, that as we open up his word, as we see who God is once again, that he will draw you to himself no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. Whether you have known God ever, or maybe this is the first time, or maybe you've been drawn to God a thousand times, but I hope this morning that God will do that work in your life. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Father, we're grateful for our time to gather together this morning to open up your word once again, to look at the book of Exodus. And Father, as we jump into this story that might be familiar to some of us, it might be new to some of us, I pray that no matter how we're approaching this story this morning, that it will hit our hearts afresh today, that we will see you for who you are And that will respond appropriately to that. So Lord, we pray for your spirit to work in this time. To bring about transformation. To bring about change, conviction, encouragement, hope, and peace this morning. That only you can bring. Lord, we submit this time to you and pray that you'd be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14 is where we're going to be this morning, looking at these two chapters here. And to begin our time, we're just going to read the first four verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi ha between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zaphon, You shall encamp facing it by the sea for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. And they did so. Israel did so. The 10th plague has come in Egypt. The firstborn of Egypt was struck down. And only those who had blood over their doorposts, the lamb of the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, only their firstborn survived. And with this final act, Pharaoh finally relents and lets lets God's people go. And so the people of Israel leave Egypt and they begin this trek to a new place. We see at the end of chapter 13... That Moses takes the bones of Joseph with him. Joseph, who some 400 years earlier had said, Take my bones with you when you leave Egypt, because God is going to get you out of this place. And God has. God leads his people as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. But Yahweh is still doing a work of redemption. He's still doing a work in his people's hearts and lives. And so he tells Moses to lead the people to a different place than expected, to go a different route than would be be expected as they leave Egypt. He tells them to go and camp between an Egyptian city and the sea, the Red Sea. We don't know exactly how many people are with Moses at this time, but it is reasonable to think there are roughly 1.5 to 2 million people, men, women, and children going with Moses out of Egypt. That would be like getting all of the people that live in Fairfax County, Loudoun County, Prince William County, and Arlington County all together to go on a camping trip with each other. That's a lot of people. But see, God is not just being a cosmic GPS for them, He has a reason for where He's leading them. But this reason might seem a little bit odd. Verses 3 through 4 say, for Pharaoh, God's telling Moses this, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And God says, once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Now, perhaps Moses has gotten to the place where he is fully trusting the Lord. He doesn't ask any questions of God. He doesn't announce to the people why they're going to the camp they're going to. God has just told him, Pharaoh is going to come after you. But Moses just leads these people to this place. And the text tells us very plainly that they, they did this. They followed Moses. God told Moses what he was going to do, that Pharaoh's going to come after him. But he also said, I will get glory over him. But notice God doesn't outline the plan for Moses. He doesn't tell him how this is going to happen. He just says, go, trust me. And so Moses goes with this two million person camping party to set up camp on the edge of the sea. Now the text cuts and it switches scenes back to Egypt. Look at verses five through nine. It says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by pi Haharoth in front of baal Zephon. God has told Moses what to do. God has told Moses what's going to happen. And here we see that it's actually happening that way. Pharaoh mounts this massive army to go after the people of Israel. There's 2 million people. So he, he brings together this huge army and he is going to lead the army out. This is presumably the most powerful army in all of the world at this point. They have all their force, all their power coming after God's people Now, God's people have a pretty good jump on Egypt, but the chariots of Egypt are fast. And God has told Moses to stop and camp by the sea. And soon the army is upon them. The people are camping out by the sea. And I can imagine that off in the distance they hear what sounds like thunder. But the sound's too consistent to be thunder. And so they look off into the distance and see this huge forming dust cloud. And maybe say, oh, maybe it is a, a dust storm a, or a standstorm. storm. But as they strain their eyes a bit more, they see their worst nightmare. Chariot after chariot racing toward them at terrifying speed. They look ahead of them and all there is is a sea. They can't go over it. They can't go under it. And it'd be impossible for them to go through it they can't turn back toward egypt or they were surely fall into the hands of pharaoh and his army and either be enslaved once again or killed as the jesus storybook bible that we read to my son says they could see the flashing swords now glinting in the baking sun and the dust clouds and chariot chariot after scary chariot surging towards them so they did the only thing there was left to do panic See, death is before them and death is behind them and they are terrified. So they freak out. Verse 10 says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out to Yahweh. I can imagine this is much more of a corporate wailing and screaming and groaning than crying for help. And they immediately turn to the one who has led them out of this place, and they turn on him and go after him. Listen to this in verses 11 through 12. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Man, we can look at this and be like, Gosh, silly silly Israelites. They, They don't understand what's going on here, but can't we be the same way? We feel attacked or threatened at times, and when we do, we turn to those around us and blame others for our circumstances. But then they say something key that reveals the reality of their hearts, and I think oftentimes our hearts. The end of verse 12, they say, For it would have been better, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness, in the midst of difficulty in the midst of trial, in the midst of something that seems to have no way out, they believe that they know best. All they see is death. All they see is slavery. They don't see God. And this is after they've seen God do some crazy things, right? I mean, they've seen God perform these 10 insane plagues on the people of Israel to display, to demonstrate the fact that he has power over all creation. He has power over life. He has power over death. He has power over all human power. Yet in the midst of crisis, crisis, they quickly turn. They want their old life more than promised freedom. And this won't be the only time that the people of Israel complain to Moses about what God is doing. But again, don't we do the same thing? When following Christ gets hard, when difficulty or suffering or persecution come, we can be so quick to think that God has abandoned us, so quick to return to what we perceive as being our safe place, the safer way, the less risky way, our old way of life, of self-reliance, of isolation, of addiction, of grabbing for control, of grabbing for power. But see, we have to remember that this is no navigational mistake made by God. This is exactly where he wants them to be so that he can do exactly what he wants to do, allowing the people of of Israel to be pursued by Pharaoh because he says he will get glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians will know that he is Yahweh. But it's not just the Egyptians who will know this. It's also God's people. See, God, I believe, again, has brought Moses more and more to a place of faith. And instead of freaking out with Israel, Moses, by God's grace, walks by faith and he trusts Yahweh. And so he responds to this faithless, accusing words of God's people. Verses 13 and 14, Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. You have only to be silent. He says, Fear not. This is much more of a rebuke than it is a word of comfort. Fear not. Do not know who God is. Stand firm. See the salvation of Yahweh. He will do this, He will save you, just like He always has, what He's always been doing. He will remain faithful to you. You will not see the Egyptians again. Moses is confident that he doesn't know what God's going to do, but he is confident this will be the last time that the Egyptians harass God's people as they leave to a new place. And then Moses says some of the most comforting words that could ever be heard or believed. Yahweh will fight for you. Yahweh will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Don't do anything. You can't do anything. Yahweh will get the victory because only he can. See, they have no other options. No way to save themselves. All they can do is trust in Yahweh alone. So God is working to sovereignly save his people. They are backed up with death before them and death behind them. So that, so that he might show with certain clarity that salvation belongs to him alone. Salvation belongs to Yahweh alone. So what will he do to free his people? He tells Moses in verses 15 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God is going to do something that only he can do. As Lord of creation, he will use his creation to save his people. He will divide the sea in half so that the people have a, a place to walk through so they can cross over on dry land from death to life. And then Pharaoh and his army will go in after them. And God says, I will get glory over them. Then God does what he says he's going to do. And listen to this. This is insane if we can even picture all of what he does here in this moment. Verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. This pillar of cloud that God has been leading the people of Israel with. It goes behind them to protect them from the Egyptians. And man, think about this. God could just straight up destroy the Egyptians. He he has all this power to do this, to divide the sea. But he, he decides not to destroy them. He could right in that moment, just snap of a finger. Could destroy all the army of Pharaoh in that moment. But he's doing something bigger. He's doing something bigger than just destroying the enemy of his people. He's showing his people that he alone is Lord. That he is the one who will rescue them from the oppressive yoke of Pharaoh. And he's doing it to bring them under his yoke. That he is Lord. That they should follow him as ruler and king. And that the only the way that he provides is their only way to salvation. So he divides the sea. Now, this is not some natural occurrence. This is a supernatural act of God that does not need to be explained through natural explanation of the possibility of this happening. The laws of nature are put in place by the creator. He is over them, not under them. So the wind blows and the sea divides and he tells the people to go in to walk into the bed of the sea with water on their left and water on their right. I mean, this would take some faith, right? They've just seen this massive sea before them, an army coming after them. It divides in front of them and God says, okay, go walk through. This would take some faith to be the first one to step out, right? Is the water going to hold? Is it going to stay up? Is God going to be faithful? But there's nothing else for them to do. They understand with great clarity there is no other way. There is no other hope, no other means of salvation, but to go the way that God makes I think when we look in this moment, it brings clarity to it, confronts an often stated and believed lie of God's people that you and I have probably heard and we can be prone to believe or even operate by. And that is that God helps those who help themselves. But as one commentator points out, it isn't true that God helps those who help themselves. What's true is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. So as Hebrews eleven twenty nine 29 says, the people of Israel enter the sea by faith. Exodus 14, verse 22 says, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. A way of salvation has been made, but judgment is soon to follow. See verses 23 through 29. The Egyptians pursued then went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels, so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us free from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians." But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Man, if the 10th plague, if the 10th plague that we looked at last week was the epic finality to Pharaoh's question that we looked at two weeks ago when he asked, who is Yahweh? If the 10th plague was the the final epic finale to that, then this right here is the underlining, bold-facing exclamation point on the end of it. God declares to Pharaoh, God declares to the Egyptians, I am who I am. Verses 30 and 31. Thus says the Lord, or thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. When Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. They feared Yahweh and they believed Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Once again, he has saved his people. Israel saw the great power of Yahweh once again. And so they have this reverent fear. They believe him. They trust in him. And now the man they turned on to question, they trust in him as well to lead them. God set them free from Pharaoh and he set them free now to come under his lordship and to worship him alone. Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that what's happening here to the people of Israel is like a baptism. They walked through the water of saving grace. The way that only Yahweh could provide for them with death before them and death behind them. Yahweh made a way and they crossed from death to life. They pass through the waters, the cleansing waters, to come under his lordship. And it's all his doing. It's amazing grace. Now, how do they respond to this amazing, saving grace of God? What do they do in response to what God has done for them? Man, they sing. They break out in song. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. They respond to their deliverance by worshiping through song. They sing about Yahweh. They sing to Him, who He is and what He's done. Listen to some of the lines from this song. Verse 1, chapter 15, I will sing to Yahweh for He has triumphed gloriously. Verse 2, Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Verse 2 again, this is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. In verses four through ten, he takes time to they take time to recount and sing of what God has done for them, the victory they've had, He's had over their enemies. Verse eleven: Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Verse thirteen: You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. Verse seventeen. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. In verse 18, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. Then we see verses 20 and 21 that the women led by Moses' sister take tambourines and they come out and they dance before the Lord, singing this song, singing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea, Miriam, and these women sing And can you imagine this? A chorus of two million people declaring the praise of God and his grace. Once they heard the thundering noise of hooves. And now what is the thundering noise is the sound of voices lifting up praise to Yahweh who will reign forever and ever. See the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. And the song of response is not just some nice, neat story to read and move on. It is a foreshadowing of something much more significant, much more personal for you and for me. See, we all have our own Egypt. We all have our own Red Sea. And right now, we either stand on this side of it or on the other side. Every last person in this room is born into the world enslaved. We are enslaved to sin, to rebellion, utterly unable and unwilling to submit to the lordship of Yahweh, the one true God. We desire to be God. We desire to be in control, to rule our own life. If you don't believe this, go hang out with a toddler for a little while. If you don't believe this, just look at yourself in the mirror on any given day. Man, we wrestle with, we desire, we long to be in control of our Life and the result of this is death. Death before us, death behind us. But death is not the end. Salvation belongs to Yahweh and He has made a way. See, the application of Exodus 14 and 15 is not to think about our present Egypt that we're going through. It's not to think about a present oppressive Pharaoh in our life. As one commentator says, it's not so much that we apply the Exodus to our lives, but that the Exodus is applied to us. The significance is not found in what we do with it, but what God has already done for us. This is not about a God who will win our battles for us. This is about a God who has won our battle for us. See, your personal Egypt is not a bad day. Your personal Egypt is not a bad circumstance. Your personal Egypt is not an oppressive relationship. Your personal Egypt is that you have worshipped anything and everything except God and deserve eternal death and condemnation for your rebellion. Your personal Egypt is that you're enslaved to sin and death. But like we said, this is not so much a story about Israel as it is about God and his grace. And the sea has parted. Dry land has emerged because Christ has come, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. You need an exodus, but you can't fabricate it on your own. Just like Israel, you must be still and allow God to fight for you, and he has. It's Jesus who endures for your sake that you might be set free from the yoke of slavery to sin and to death. As Alan preached last week, Christ is our Passover lamb, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He bore the wrath of God on his back on the cross, that through the cross your sin might be paid for, that through the cross your sin might be removed from you, and that you're given righteousness by faith. The crossing of the Red Sea is a foreshadowing of the ultimate deliverance from certain death that all of us need. And Jesus has triumphed over sin and death for us so that we might be set free and made alive. What must you do to be saved? You must cry out to Christ. Call in the name of Jesus. Believe that he died for you. That God raised him from the dead to give you new life. That he is Lord, not you. If you are in Christ this morning, if you are in Christ, if you've repented and believed the gospel this morning then you should look at the story of Exodus 14 and instead of saying and talking about your current Egypt, you should say, my Egypt is behind me because Christ has rescued me. I've crossed the sea. I've been given new life. And as we said, Paul equates the crossing of the Red Sea to baptism. As one commentator says, Christian baptism is the process, process whereby we undergo our own exodus. Exodus leaving the world and joining another way of life under Christ's leadership and authority. We're baptized into the water, raised up to new life. The cleansing water covering us just as the people pass through the sea to come under the lordship of Yahweh. God brought, brought the people of Israel out for this purpose and Jesus does the same thing. He has delivered you from the oppressive yoke of sin and he has said to you, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, find rest in me. Israel crossed on dry ground from death to life. And in Jesus, we cross on dry ground from death to life. Hear Jesus's words in John chapter five, verse 24. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has crossed over from death to life. But listen, if you're not yet in Christ, if you've never truly repented of your sin and turned to Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sin, then you're standing on this side of the sea. Death is before you. Death is behind you. But the way of Christ has been opened. But you, like Israel, must step out in faith, believing God alone to be faithful to save you. Because if you remain where you are right now, if you remain where you are right now, it is certain Death. It is certain death. Will you respond to Christ's call to you today? Will you turn away from slavery to sin and step out in faith today, calling on the name of Jesus to save you today? He is the way, the truth, and the life. Come to him. Rest in him. Believe that he died for you and rose again to give you new life. Cross from death to life today. There's no better time for you to do that. Listen, you cannot be trying to be a Christian. If somebody says, are you you a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ? You you can't respond. I'm trying to be. Your identity, no aspect of your identity in Christ is something you can come up with on your own. You must be still and let Yahweh fight for you. And he has. It's been declared. It is finished. And will you trust in Christ today if you've never trusted in him before? Sojourn, how do we respond to this? How do we, as God's people, respond to this? If you've experienced the grace of God and Christ alone, there are many responses we can and we should have, but perhaps one of the most biblical responses that we should have to our deliverance and God's grace is singing. We sing like Israel, the song of the sea, which is the song of salvation. We sing in response to Christ, our Redeemer, and what He has done for us. And what has He done for us? Colossians 1 says He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. This is bigger than crossing the Red Sea. This is more amazing than two million people walking on dry land. You were dead in your sin, and God made you alive. The holy God of all the universe... Who does not, is not obligated to be in a relationship with you because of your rebellion has made a way for you to be cleansed and brought into a relation, not just temporarily, but for all eternity. And what does that make you now? Once an enemy, now a child of God. Once an orphan, now a part of a family. Once broken, now restored. Once enslaved, now free. Israel sang a song in response to to grace that's what God's people do when we reflect on what he's done for us If, if we don't think song is a part of what God has called us to then we may need to go back to the scriptures again and just read through them the longest book in the whole entire Bible is a book of songs there's songs all throughout scripture We're commanded to sing because of what Christ has done for us, to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And in the end, we see that songs of praise will be sung to the Lamb who is worthy. How can you hear the gospel? How can you be reminded of what Christ has done for you and not have your emotions stirred? And not sing, not be in awe. See, so I think if we're honest, sometimes in, in conservative Christianity or more reformed circles, we fear emotionalism. We fear emotionalism. We don't want to do anything things to stir up people's emotions. We just want to preach the truth. We just want to talk about the truth. But man, have you heard the truth this morning? Have you heard the truth this morning? Christ has been preached. You were dead and he made you alive. Just ask yourself this question. Where would you be without Jesus today? Where would you be if Christ had not rescued you? Death before you, death behind you. He has rescued you. If that doesn't make you want to sing loudly, if that doesn't make you want to respond emotionally to what Christ has done for you, I don't know what else will. Have you experienced grace? Has the gospel been applied to your heart? Is it just in your head or is it impacting your whole entire life? You were a pile of dry bones, and God breathed life into you, undeserving, unmerited life. Man, I want us to be a singing church. I want us to sing loudly in response to what Christ has done for us. I want us to join the chorus of the redeemed now and forever, praising our God who has triumphed over sin and death. But don't hear me say that this is merely about doing something outwardly. True worship must be an overflow of the reality of your own heart. Being moved emotionally because of what Christ has done for you. That should be where this comes from. See, lifting your hands and singing loudly and moving your body because you like the tune and not because the gospel has impacted your heart is not worship. But also hearing the truth of the gospel and not having your heart impacted is not worship. The gospel of grace is what prompts worship. It's the beginning and the end of it. And sometimes we can think and say things like, oh, I just wasn't, into, just wasn't into worship this morning. I left that church just because I, I wasn't really into the worship. I mean, was the gospel preached? Was Christ made much of? Were you reminded of the fact that you were dead and he made you alive? That's where worship comes from. It's not how good somebody's playing the guitar or singing. It's not how the music makes you feel. It's what Christ has done for you. And our songs over and over again should be rich in truth that constantly take the focus off of us and our preferences and place it wholly on the one who is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Sojourn, God's ordained purpose of song is to remember, to reflect, to rejoice, and to remind. God has weaved music into the very very fabric of who we are as image bearers. You can see this all around the world. Song transcends culture. Every culture has their songs. Every culture sings. God has done that. And Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is why we sing. If you ever think about, well, why do we sing together as a church? This is why we sing. Paul tells us we should sing to one another. We should sing to God because of what Christ has done. This is why we gather together. Neither of those things are optional. To be a follower of Christ and not sing, to be a follower of Christ and not gather together with God's people is not an option for you if you're in Christ. That's why we sing at the beginning to call us to worship. It's why we sing at the end in response to the word preached. We sing to God and we sing to one another we sing to remember what he's done for us. We sing to reflect on the amazing grace we've received. We sing to rejoice that though we were once dead and lost, we've been made alive and are found. We sing to remind ourselves and to teach and encourage one another in the gospel every week. See, I think so often we can approach our time together as God's people casually and unprepared. We, we come together, gather on a Sunday morning. If we come at all, we have no joy, no expectation, no focus, no reverence. We show up late. We leave early. It isn't a priority in our life because we stayed up too late on Saturday night. We just skipped gathering with God's people on Sunday morning. And that needs to change if that's you. I want us to look forward to gathering together with God's people from the very beginning to the very end, knowing that everything we do is calling us to worship, is calling us back to reflect and remember and be reminded of what Christ has done for us. I want us to see this time together as vital for our encouragement, vital for our obedience, vital for our mission. I want it to be something that we prepare for every week. I just encourage you to take time to pray about gathering with God's people on Sunday. To pray for your heart, to prepare on Saturday night for waking up on time in the morning and getting ready and going to be with God's people to sing songs of praise. Two weeks ago, my wife and I were able to go down to a pastor's retreat for the church planting network that we're a part of, the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. And we sat there on the first night and there was roughly 700 people there, pastors and their wives I mean, I was so encouraged looking around, seeing people who love Jesus deeply. I was encouraged, overcome with emotion at the grace of God in my own life, that he would rescue me, that he would save me, that he would bring me from death to life. I was encouraged by that because I saw my brothers and sisters around me. I heard them around me singing these truths over me, and I was just able to sit there and be in awe of God's grace in my life. But listen, all of us, not just if you're a pastor, not just if you are in leadership, all of us, if we've experienced God's unfathomable grace, should sing. And we should look forward to doing that every week. And I want us to sing loudly. Maybe there are times in your life, though, you don't feel like singing. Tim, man, you, don't, you don't know what's going on right now. I just, I don't feel like singing. Maybe you're struggling. Let me say this, that's all the more reason for you to come be with God's people. That's all the more reason for you to be here and not sit at home. So that when you are here, when you are struggling to believe, you can just sit there and hear the voices of your brothers and sisters singing truth over you. Even if you don't believe it right now, you can say there's a room full of people who do, and that is encouraging to your heart. Some of you will lift hands Some of you will give shouts of praise, but some of you will be so moved that you will sit in your seat or stand quietly in awe. I am not calling us to emotionalism. I'm not calling us just to drum up emotion for emotion's sake. I am calling us to respond to the gospel hitting us square in the heart and overwhelming us with true emotion. Where would you be without Jesus? We do this together in response to what God has done for us. He is our strength and our song. He has become our salvation. And at the end of the day, you say, why does this really matter? Why does it matter if I sing or I don't sing? Why does it matter if I gather with God's people corporately or not? Why does it matter? Because if the gospel is not a precious truth that moves you, if the gospel is not a precious truth that stirs your affections, that stirs your heart, it will not inform your life. That's why we gather every week. It's why we preach and sing and image the gospel every week as brothers and sisters in Christ. To remember, to reflect, to rejoice, and to remind. The gospel changes everything. You can't know Christ and your life remain the same. It changes everything, but we forget that. We forget it on a daily basis. We forget it on a moment-by-moment basis sometimes. But man, when we hear it again, when we hear it preached, when we hear it sung... I believe the Spirit utilizes that to bring conviction and repentance, hope, joy, peace, and strength to fight the good fight. To press on to the upward call of Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Redeemer. Listen, we were once hemmed in. Death before us. Death behind us. But the sea was parted. The dry path emerged and Christ led us through the waters of baptism to new life. Sojourn, let's sing this morning in response to this truth. Let's sing like people who've actually been set free from slavery, not like people who remain in it. If you are in Christ, you have been redeemed. And now together we join in singing the song of the redeemed. And may these songs encourage your heart this morning. May they send you out to live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, to see all of your life as worship. May they encourage you to go and tell your neighbors and your coworkers, your family and your friends of your God and Savior, who has rescued and redeemed you out of death to life, so that they too might hear of the good news of Christ and experience his grace and also join in the song of the redeemed. As we come to the table this morning, To eat the bread and drink the cup. May we rejoice together. May we worship together as brothers and sisters. As the redeemed. Look around you this morning as you come forward. Look around you and see all the people that are coming forward. To declare that Christ has set them free. And be blown away by that. That God would save so many undeserving sinners. And we're just one small little local church in northern Virginia. And that's amazing. And it's not because of anything we've done. It's not because we are special people worthy of it. It's only because of his great mercy and grace. Oh, what a merciful and mighty God we have. And as you come forward this morning and eat the bread and drink the cup, allow this truth to hit your heart with full force. Christ's blood was shed for you. Christ's body was given for you. Man, may that overwhelm you this morning. To worship and as you return to your seat join together and sing about our god and to our god who's made a way from death to life for every tribe language and nation and if you're not a follower of christ i would just ask you not to come forward to take communion this morning because this is an act of worship it is a declaration that we believe that our only hope our only way to be forgiven and made right with god is through what christ has done for us and so if you've not yet repented of your sin and trusted in Christ's death and resurrection, then we don't want you to come forward to take communion. We want you to take Christ this morning. Would you call out to Jesus to save you today? And please come talk to me or anyone else that's a leader here. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. That's why this church is here, is to help you to know Christ, to follow Christ, and to experience his grace. Those of you that do come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive the elements tear off a small piece of bread and take a cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. And you can take it immediately or when you get back to seat, back to your seat, let's pray. And then let's sing. Father God, we are grateful for the story of the Exodus. We are grateful for the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to realize this is not just a, neat Bible story to tell and talk about, to try and figure out. It's a story of your grace. And so, Lord, I pray that that would hit us in our hearts today. Lord, would you stir our hearts today? And if we're sitting in our seat right now, Lord, if we're sitting there thinking, man, I just don't have emotion. I'm not responding emotionally to this. Lord, I pray that we would do the hard, hard work and look deep into our heart and ask what's going on. Father, would you give us ears to hear your gospel today? Would you give us eyes to see your amazing grace today with that overwhelm us in whatever way that looks like for us. And may we respond in song together today. But I pray, Lord, we wouldn't just sing here in this place. I pray that we'd go out with this song of redemption on our lips and in our hearts, into our workplaces, into our communities. to tell more and more people about the redeeming grace of Christ. Death is before us. Death is behind us. But Christ is the way to lead us to life. May that be the song of our hearts, the song of our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your amazing grace. And we respond to you now for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.